if these relations start to deteriorate, and heaven forbid we do see tariffs again. Yeah, I think the, uh, the China already exported, imported uh, more agricultural products from the U.S., you know, about 35 uh, billion uh, RMBs, which is about 1.1 times, and also imported uh, the soybeans, 78 uh, billion tons, and about two times. So I think also the U.S. Uh, consider Huawei uh, involved for, uh, you know, the, the, the 5G standard design. So that's a positive sign. But I think uh, with the unemployment rate in the U.S. is very high, so I think President Trump will probably still put more pressure on um, bringing the manufacturing um, uh, jobs back. So that uh, also impacts the product chain, industrial uh, chain on the, the, the China front. Okay. So, so that will put some pressure on the second phase, yeah. Yanan, thank you very much indeed. That's Yanan Wu, who's the chairman of Zhenrong Bao in Beijing. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this morning. Uh, US stock index futures are continuing their rally uh, following a fine performance on Friday on Wall Street. They're up about another two-thirds of 1%. So as a result, Asian markets moving ahead. The ASX 200 in Australia up about 0.8%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is up one and a quarter percent. The Cosby in South Korea has risen half a percent at the open. And futures markets indicating that Hang Seng will add about 300 points at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Do please join me again tomorrow at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. The weather forecast, sunny intervals. Maximum temperature is going to be about 30 degrees. Showers and a few squally thunderstorms later. And there will be showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. And then the weather will improve gradually in the following couple of days. 29 degrees right now, 76% relative humidity. 8.32, Samantha Butler has the half-hour news. Britain has become the latest country to announce a gradual relaxation of some of its coronavirus restrictions, but the changes only apply to England. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said people would be actively encouraged to return to their workplaces and limits on outdoor exercise would be lifted as long as social distancing was maintained. But speaking immediately after Mr Johnson delivered his address, the leader of the opposition Labour Party, Keir Starmer, said the government still wasn't providing the clarity people needed. I think there are real problems here. Um, basically, those that can't work at home are being told to go to work tomorrow. That's millions of people. And that means go to work in about 12 hours' time, mixed with the message that um, if it's possible to do so, don't use public transport. Uh, that's quite a thing to spring on people for tomorrow morning. So that's why I say the statement raises as many questions as it answers. The U.S. Vice President Mike Pence has begun self-isolating away from the White House after an aide was diagnosed with the coronavirus. His press secretary, Katie Miller, tested positive for COVID-19 on Friday. Three other top officials leading the government's response to the outbreak have already begun two weeks of self-isolation. The governor of New York, the American state worst hit by coronavirus, says he expects tax revenues to fall by more than 60 billion U.S. dollars from next year to 2024. Andrew Cuomo said without federal support, the losses would devastate schools, transport and social services. Meanwhile, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin warned that up to a quarter of the working population could lose their jobs, although he believed there'd be a strong recovery.
unlike the Great Depression, where you had economic issues that led to this, we closed down the economy. So it's, it's, it wouldn't be a surprise if you closed down the economy that in half of the workforces, half the people didn't work. And, and that's why we're very focused on rebuilding this economy and getting it back to where it was. This is no fault of American business. This is no fault of American workers. This is a result of a virus. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Two parts of the programme today. Before nine, we're going to be talking about political developments locally. After Starry Lee assumed the chairmanship of the House Committee in LegCo in dramatic scenes on Friday, and protests returned to many shopping centres yesterday and in Mongkok overnight. And then after nine, reports on the fight against COVID-19 from specialists in the UK, the United States, and in Hong Kong. Let us know your thoughts on any of those issues. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Bankchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, Bankchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call and our number is 233-88266 we look forward to hearing from you 233-88266 is the number uh, before we get into the uh, discussion some uh, comments uh, that has come in uh, between uh, programs uh, there's an interesting one on uh, education which uh, we will perhaps get to m- maybe tomorrow it's a busy program today uh, David in an email says I'd like to suggest the topic of Hong Kong or and the US-Hong Kong Policy Act for one of your forthcoming uh, programmes, and there's more information about that. Uh, David will get back to that maybe another time. Um, Andrew Kay says, Watching the antics in LegCo on Friday, why do the so-called opposition think they are allowed to break the law with impunity? Who do they think will be impressed by their childish behaviour? How about their salaries and benefits are suspended until they sort themselves out? Their stupidity is impeding the work of government which the actual citizens rely on. I officially object. This is definitely misbehaviour in public office. Arrest them all. Three exclamation marks. That comes from uh, Andrew Kay. And uh, Char says, this is on the Chimsa Choi protests. Uh, first, I'd like to point out the irony in how we are the first country or city in the world that's been granted freedom to go out again during the virus situation and in celebration, the people of Hong Kong have gone out to protest instead of appreciating how lucky we are to be out of the temporary lockdown. It's quite insulting, really, to everyone else in the world stuck indoors. Ironic that the people are set free from lockdown is out fighting for freedom again. Does anybody remember a time when in Hong Kong when business was as usual, constantly thriving with creative communities and innovative new restaurants and shops, competitive but exciting, and weekends were for leisures? Now the news that they are still protesting, and as a matter of fact, uh, hurling petrol bombs at police stations and rioting in Prince Edward last week. My last piece of faith in Hong Kong returning to post-COVID-19 normal is lost. I can't expect anything less from a group of youngsters who aren't in school and thus are probably planning their next stunt to ruin Hong Kong's economy even further. The fact that I now have to use a pseudonym in case I get tracked down and egged or have my family threatened goes to show how ironic the fight for freedom is when only one opinion is considered in their eyes. This isn't a revolution, it's a wreckage of a once-bustling, high-flying, driven city. 
It's those who live in it who are suffering the most. I'm not pro-China or pro-communism or even anti-protest. It's the naivety. Also ironic that face masks were banned and now they're mandatory. Student protesters, if you hate the city and its future so much, why don't you go back to school, get your degrees and education, then move abroad? That comes uh, from Char. Joining us for the discussion now, we have uh, Regina Yip, an executive councillor and uh, chairwoman of the New People's Party. Ms Yip, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for, for, for joining us. Um, first of all, let's, let's talk about maybe a little bit, a little bit about LegCo. Um, yeah. Is it uh, back to normal now? Is it business as usual? Is that all over about the House Committee, do you think? Well, the House Committee, you know, armed with the legal advice from the two senior counsel, uh, um, the advice confirmed that uh, Starry Lee can, as incumbent IC chairman, can confirm, can perform all the powers and functions of the position pending the election. So she chaired a meeting uh, last Friday and cleared a lot of the outstanding electrical business. So I think she can continue to carry on this way, but I won't bar out, I won't rule out um, the opposition members uh, holding parallel meetings or performing other antics to disrupt the holding of the House committee meetings. All right. Uh, good morning, Regina. Um, there's something puzzling me right, right from the start of this. If Dennis Kwok was still the vice chairman... Why wasn't Starry Lee still the chairman? The answer now is, of course, she was still the chairman. Then why does she need revalidating and Dennis Kwok doesn't? Well, um, she, is in, she is indeed the HC chairman because she continues to collect the pay, but because she put herself forward as a candidate for the uh, House Committee chairmanship for the year uh, 1920. She cannot hold meetings, so it's up to the deputy chair, Dennis Kwok, to hold meetings. And this time, very in a very unprecedented fashion, 22 opposition members also put themselves forward as candidates. So we have had six months of uh, procedural uh, proceedings, you know, right. each candidate discussing their platform, answering procedural questions, dealing with other issues out of the purview of the House Committee. Uh, so the so-called so election process has dragged on for six, seven months without uh, electing a chairperson. This, I, it seemed to me that this, this was overplaying their hand. The opposition? Yes. Yes, uh, definitely, yes. Because, I, I mean, people may have different views about the national flag, about the national anthem, etc., etc. But does it really mean you bring everything to a halt for six months? Well, well for example, we have to an important motion pending uh, confirming the appointment of the new Chief Justice of right. the Court of Final Appeal. That's important. And uh, leaving aside national anthem, we also have uh, another bill uh, the bill scrutiny of which has been completed, which is the Trademarks Amendment Bill. And we have three other important financial legislation concerning private equity, insurance, and shipping leasing uh, pending before the Council. Right. Uh, and we have over 90 subsidiary regulations, which should be subject, as you know, Mike, to negative approval right. by LegCo. Nothing has happened in the past six, seven months, you know. This is really quite ridiculous. And, and more more maternity leave as well. Yes. 
this is bread and butter stuff. I, I just incredulous that it's all been frozen for such a long period. All right, let's hope uh, it starts to move now. So, uh, uh, in a way, Safari should have moved earlier, you know, but they were held back by a legal opinion, by an opinion by the legal advisor of LegCo that uh, as incumbent chair uh, pending election, she can only perform uh, administrative matters. So the LegCo president obtained senior counsel advice uh, so, which enables Starry to resume her, her work as uh, the incumbent chairman in performing all the duties. Okay, well, let's hope that's broken the logjam. I, um, so. I hope so. So, I mean, so they were just following the legal advice of the secretariat? Uh, yes, initially. When we were, the, the, uh, the, the uh, Starry was following the legal advice of the secretariat, you know. And then eventually they took advice from senior counsel, outside senior counsel. But of course, you notice that the opposition members also very hurriedly obtained advice from another senior counsel, Mr. Phil Dykes of the Bar Association, and produced another opinion. But that's only an alternative opinion. It's not a court order. It has no restraining effect on starily chairing a proper House committee meeting. As you say, um, Starry Lee and, and everyone was just a, following the advice which was given by the Secretariat to answer your question, Mike. I think that was... Uh, <laughs> I mean, that was... I, the, don't, I don't understand the advice, I've got to say. But um, let's... Uh, but, but wasn't these... But, I mean, as you say, then, then advice was sought from these, from these outside, uh, outside... But wasn't that because the liaison office told... <laughs> Wasn't this simply uh, the uh, pro-establishment acting at the behest of the liaison office? I think the uh, briefing now process started before the liaison office spoke. You know. And we have been, uh, the pro-establishment block has been mulling over it, you know. Of course there are... Mulling it over for six months? Mulling over what are the alternatives, you know. And then the, and then um, the liaison office spoke, and then suddenly we had the advice. You see what I mean? It, it looks like it only gives an impression to many, perhaps, that that they were acting at the behest of the liaison office. That's a purely perception. We yeah. have been mulling over it for for a while. You but know. has has and a co legal advisor changed her position? Yes. She had she changed her position last Friday. She confirmed that uh, her advice was broadly in line with senior counsel advice, except that the, the situation has moved on. After six months, you cannot say if you adopt a purposive interpretation of the rules of procedure and the basic law, uh, which sets out very clearly the primary function of LECHO is to make laws. You cannot interpret the rules of procedure in such a way that the outcome is ridiculous. Yeah, and the waste of taxpayers' money and the contravention of the basic law. What are we going to do about the protests, Regina? That's very hard. That's very hard, you know. it's. Uh, I'm not directly dealing with it. Um, but um, it's, it's really a great pity that after the, the virus threat has subsided, people are abusing the new freedom to cause chaos in shopping malls, again doing things that harm the overall interests of the Hong Kong people.
because some people will say that, uh, and Changyuk Singh has been saying this recently, that the, the harder Beijing pushes, the more resistance you get. And you can you could perhaps see what happened in Lechko as an, as an example of that, of uh, Beijing pushing further. Um, the, the change over Article 23, uh, uh, over Thank Article 22... Um, the change in attitude towards uh, Lechko, there is a new pressure coming from, from Beijing and this will lead to a, a counter-pressure. This is what Chiang Yuxing and perhaps others were saying. Do you agree? I disagree with him. Mm. I disagree with him. It's not Beijing um, ratcheting up its pressure. It's really a reaction to all the, the chaos in Hong Kong threatening the prosperity and stability of our society and also challenging the authority of the central government. You know. Because, because so changing, changing, policy, changing policy on Article 22, uh, no, for example... No on the, on the well, there is. I mean, there was. There were documents. There are documents. You know, from the yeah, from I the government. Yeah, I read those yeah. documents. But the documents presented by the Constitutional Bureau some years ago, they were actually quite brief. You know, and it set out the Central People's Government's offices in Hong Kong, but it never directly said that uh, the liaison office was established under Article Twenty Two. How could that be possible? Uh, the precursor, the, the liaison office was only renamed as such in 1999. Its predecessor was the Xinhua News Agency. It was there long before the, the basic law uh, came into existence. Okay. Likewise, the right. Hong Kong Macau Affairs Office was established in 1978, okay. well before basic law became... All right, became you, uh, okay, Mr. Yep, I mean, you, yeah, you can make these arguments... Um, Maybe it's too late for these arguments because there is, let's put it like this, a widespread perception that, for example, the arrest of the, of the democratic leaders, of those 15 leaders singled out from that, from that protest, the change in advice in, in LegCo, to, to put it politely, the change in attitude by the administration over Article 22, these are all just examples, people will say, of a change in attitude in, in Beijing which is leading to the kind of uh, pushback that we see in the protests, manifested in the protests. Well, the uh, the protest started last June, didn't it, as a pushback against the mm. fugitive offenders bill. Well, I think Cheng Yuxing talks about a vicious, a vicious that circle. That was an initiative yeah. of the Hong Kong government. Yeah. Mrs. Lam made it very clear, and so did the central government spokesman. It was her initiative. And there have been pushback in the past 22 years by Hong Kong people against anything to do with the nation. Hmm? Isn't that a fact? Uh, arguably, but but I'm saying yes. So then you get a vicious cycle. So how do you how do you de-escalate that? How do you how do we break out of it? Yeah. Well, that's part of the underlying tensions uh, in one country, two systems, which is not easy to implement. Uh, Beijing became increasingly aware of the difficulty in the past few years. Uh, in 2013, I think Beijing officials started writing about the inherent contradictions. In 2014, they published a white paper on the implementation of one country, two system, uh, sending a, a warning sign that they are aware of some inherent threats to uh, national security and sovereignty. And then um, in 2014, you have Occupy Central. In 2015, you have the Mong Kok riots. And now in um, 2019, because of the fugitive offenders bill, you have uh, large-scale riots, continuous large-scale riots, calling for revolution. 
Okay. Also, so who starts at the rot? Okay. Well. All right, Professor Lee is with us also, uh, Linda Lee Churlow. Yeah, good morning. Professor, yeah. good, good, good morning to you. Uh, who started the rot? Oh, well, I think... Um, it's a difficult question. Uh, well, I have written about this before. I think um, uh, the first 10 years, the first decade of our uh, reunification with the mainland, I think things have uh, gone pretty well, and uh, there's index about... Um, you know, political identity of Hong Kong people, okay? And I, uh, a recent paper I've written, uh, which has been well received uh, in academia, uh, sees that, um, you know, uh, you know uh, the feeling of uh, Hong Kong as Chinese and also as Hong Konger uh, goes hand in hand. So that's why there is no zero-sum relationship between uh, local identity and also national identity until, until 2000, around 2008. So what happened after that, okay, after 2008, the, I think um, Hong Kong identity as uh, Hong Konger uh, remained as high as ever, but uh, the identity as uh, Chinese uh, actually went down road, okay, went down road. So I think uh, one critical event was that uh, because, um, you know, under the, the, the a widespread, uh, uh, wide, uh, wider health perception, uh, among the Hong Kong community was that um, uh, Hong Kong will have universal suffrage uh, 10 years, okay, 10 years into unification. I think that is a widely held uh, belief, okay, uh, back in, in the days, uh, in, in, the, in, in the days of, um, uh, you know, when, when the basic law was passed, okay, and which written that it will be to 10 years, you know, and after 10 years of uh, reunification, we will have a review. So, that, uh, so into two, oh, Towards 2007, uh, there was, so there's expectation in the community that, okay, we should start talking about uh, implementation. But actually, we know that that didn't happen, right? And so there is a, a directive from Chinese, uh, I mean, from the central government saying that, oh, oh that that has been a misunderstanding. This, this means that we only started to discuss this, but not to implement it. So I think, you know, the... The, the the dissolution, okay, the dissolution about um, um, the, the pledges about um, universal suffrage uh, started around around that time. Okay. And so, uh, Ms. so I think I think you know that that's the beginning. Okay, yeah. Miss Yip, do you agree? Well, the um, first of all, I think Beijing gave Hong Kong far more um, freedom in democratic development than Britain in the past 165 years. Secondly, it never promised universal suffrage after the first 10 years. Uh, it, the, the Article 45 of the Basic Law sets out very clearly the conditions under which universal election for the chief executive could take place in a gradual and orderly process po and subject to the actual situation of the day. You know. So I think it's not true that it, it promised universal suffrage after 10 years. In fact, in 2007, the Standing Committee made a decision clarifying uh, that the, the uh, progress of universal suffrage after the first 10 years would be subject to the basic law, and there cannot be universal suffrage election of the entire legislature until there is universal election, a universal suffrage election of the chief executive. This is all interesting stuff, but it's history. How do we go forward from here? Uh, good well, question. You know, 
but the the moving forward is important for Hong Kong people, you know. And in my view, you know, Hong Kong can only move forward preserving our current systems if we do not upset the delicate balance, you know, between the central authority and our distinct separate systems. How about some we movement? Can remain, we, I think we can maintain our separate systems quite smoothly without constantly challenging Beijing, calling it names, you know, um, you know, smearing it in every conceivable way, as by many opposition members in LegCo. Professor Lee, how do well, we... I I agree. I agree. You know, um, well, when two systems need to live together, all right, and certainly we have to respect one one another, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in a substantial way. Um, I but, but I think it is important to point out the origin. As, 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 as we just started, you know, to ask the question, the origin. Of course, Regina, uh, you know, pointed out, you know, what just has been the official view, okay? And so uh, what I said that is, uh, you know, according to Beijing and the government, there has been a misunderstanding, unfortunate misunderstanding on the part of Hong Kong community. But nonetheless, there has, if there is a misunderstanding, that's why people uh, started to, to feel unhappy. And regrettably, the government with the Hong Kong part or the or, or, or Beijing, they have so far failed to convince the people of Hong Kong that okay, nonetheless the misunderstanding, uh, uh, but there is a lot of sincerity on the part of government to see how universal suffrage will be would be would be would be uh, put in place, and so um, so you you. you I think that, uh, you know, last time, you know, the, the, um, the proposal from the government, uh, was rejected by the community. If the central government think that the rejection was, uh, was unrealistic, okay, unrealistic. And so, um, I think they, they, they should, they should, but that is, that is what keeps the society so unhappy. So I think the government should, uh, should, should be resilient in proposing another, another proposal to the community. So that uh, to so restarting the, the consultation. Yes, yes. To to restart the conversation, uh, the, 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 the the discussion about universal suffrage, I think that is a responsible way for the government to to uh, start the conciliation. Okay. Could so you do if, that? Could you do that? Is it something to do? Can you do that with Article Twenty Three? That you have a deal that you restart the procedure uh, with Article Twenty Three? Well, I I rather not not to say things in such a like uh, trading in or as if you know we have to trade in something you know to get something uh, because I, I I do agree that uh, you know uh, national security is everything that we should uh, we should work on. Uh, the, the the problem is that uh, how we can protect, okay, Hong Kong as part of China, okay, we are also China citizens, how we can help protect national security, at the same time protecting um, uh, what the, the, the national uh, policy, which is one country, two system. Uh, so not, let us not, you know, uh, put um, uh, Hong Kong at, at, at the opposite the, uh, 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 extreme, okay, of uh, against national security, I think which is uh, which is uh, a lot of people trying to, uh, including um, people in Beijing, try to see Hong Kong against. Um, but but I think it is important for 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 people in power, okay, uh, to see to really embrace the the wishes and and the source of uh, unhappiness within Hong Kong community and and and, and really. Uh, 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 
take up, you know, propose countermeasures, um, or and 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 okay, okay, really okay. rescue the trust because so, we see it from okay. the from the uh, sorry, we, we haven't got very long left. Can cooperate. Yeah. Okay, Monsieur, how would you solve it? I don't think um, a faster pace of democratic development or even democratic development at all is the priority of all Hong Kong okay. citizens. So, so, so what's Particularly the in the light of the, the chaos of the past year, there are plenty of Hong Kong citizens who want to go back to our past lifestyle before 1997, more apolitical, more orderly, more peaceful, more prosperous, more growth and okay, more so, opportunity so how do we, how for do we, everyone. Yeah, so how do we achieve that? What do we do? Not, not What do we not do? Again, I think we need to, we, because Hong Kong has a very, Hong Kong society, Hong Kong people have a very different lifestyle from that of the mainland. As um, Professor Lee pointed out, we are two distinct systems. To live together, to coexist peacefully, we must maintain a balance. You know, I don't think it serves Hong Kong people's interest to keep smearing the central government or challenging its authority or doing things that upset the overall stability of Hong Kong or even challenge national security. No, I, I totally agree. We need, we as Chinese citizens should be preserving uh, the nation's security. But at the same time, the Hong Kong people do have an aspiration for greater political reform. We're not meeting that aspiration. Um, I think aspirations serve our interests only if the reform results in good governance. If you look at the state of our legislative council and the state of our district councils these days, I think questions ought to ask whether more democratic development would serve our long-term interests. What sort of people are we electing to electrical? What sort of outcomes are we producing? How are we helping Hong Kong people? I think these fundamental questions must be addressed first. Okay, well, Regina, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, Executive Councillor, Chairwoman of the New People's Party, and thanks to Professor Linda Lee from the Department of Public Policy at City University. We're turning uh, mostly to uh, COVID-19 in the second part of the programme after 9 o'clock. Do, do join in. Uh, the weather, sunny intervals, temperatures up to 30 degrees today, and the weather will improve gradually in the following couple of days. 29 degrees now, humidity is at 73%. <laughs> Result of a virus. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Monday morning, first one of the week with Mike Grouse and me, Hugh Chiverton. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, mostly between now and 9.30 about uh, COVID-19 with uh, uh, a doctor in uh, the UK at the moment, as well as a clinical assistant professor uh, in uh, Hong Kong. Um, but first, let's uh, follow up on the subject of the first part of the programme this morning, talking about uh, political developments and uh, a little bit about kind of one country, two systems uh, with uh, Regina Ip. Uh, some of the uh, emails, there's comments on our Facebook page as well, um, which uh, I urge you to, to look at. Uh, let's see. Um, Drake says, for two consecutive weeks, the rioting police shut down economic activities arbitrarily at major malls for alleged protests which affected no shoppers. Innocent families separated in Nazi-style raids during which young members received a $2,000 fine with no evidence of their crime. Um, uh, 
common, uh, uh, the police commissioner defended their leniency towards common assault committed by log-foo mobsters in the name of patriotism, while teeth-losing victims were arrested for fighting in public. Despite daily occurrence of these Orwellian bizarreness, Tung Chi Wah challenged which freedoms had we lost since the establishment of this commie colony. If there's a joke which started the whole world crying, it's one country, two systems. More to come in the next decade. Uh, Bowen, I think I'll have to postpone your message so I can read it in full. Uh, Drake also says, Regina was lying. There was no chaos in malls created by protesters. Even when some were singing, all business was still up and running and not shoppers were affected. It was the police shutting down all economic activities in the end for two weeks. Rick says, uh, great, you have Regina Ip on the programme. At last, the loyalist stalwarts come forward. Regina Ip Regina is the architect of the first big divide in our society when the government decided to impose laws on the people without consent. She started the big rift and we see the consequences rolling on till today. Her opinion can surely be valued by those who believe in the administration. Another true hypocrite. That's from uh, Rick. Uh, and uh, Matthew, referring to discussion on Facebook, I think, says, Good on TC for calling out the decontextualization propaganda trick used by those who either knowingly or mindlessly repeat and advocate CCP talking points, like Mike Rouse, Regina, yep, <laughs> the Andrews, Herman, and, of course, the subject of TC's Facebook post this morning, Tom. Uh, James says, on the legal advice in LegCo, you pays your money, you takes your pick. Usually lawyers don't change their advice like this. I mean, real lawyers don't. Seems bipolar law. Is the original advice six months old? What will the advice be this week? I can't wait for the LegCo movie. Maybe need an 18 rating plus for the violence and extreme animation. I have some respect for Regina. I knew her when she became Secretary of Security and there were bizarre interviews and she was attacked unfairly. I just wish she'd learn from her time in exile in Canada to be more considerate of other views. Jalal says, we were promised a broadly representative election committee immediately, but no one claims that the CE election committee is actually broadly representative. Please tell Regina Yip to stop pretending they're keeping their promises. Uh, the government needs to show sincerity and flexibility. Uh, Stanley says it's a very shallow fallback to suggest that China has bestowed more democratic freedoms than Britain did. It's a bygone era and expectations evolve. The world is now in a constant flux and hopefully we progress in all manner of directions, uh, especially uh, democracy. Uh, Drake also says Regina Ip seems to have forgotten that Beijing had added a lot of weight to their side of the delicate balance over the years. Uh, uh, Peter M says the government did nothing to address the concerns of the majority of Hong Kong people during the hiatus brought about the coronavirus. Instead, the police, in a high-profile manner, selectively arrested a number of veteran and elderly pro-democracy leaders. Is it any wonder that the protests have start restarted? Regina Ip's uh, claim, meanwhile, that uh, China Liaison Office and the Macau Affairs Office were set up in some form before '97, so they can't be departments of the central government and be bound by Article 22, is self-evidently nonsense. The government and the pro-establishment camp must accept a large part of the responsibility for the current state of affairs in Hong Kong and need to start working in the interests of all Hong Kong people and not just their supporters. That's from Peter M. Thank you very much indeed for uh, those. Um, let's turn now to the issue of uh, COVID-19 uh, internationally and in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, we're joined now by uh, Darren Mann, a surgeon based in Hong Kong, currently in London, assisting with the COVID-19 response, and Dr Sridhar Siddharth, uh, a clinical assistant Professor in the Department of Microbiology at the University of Hong Kong. Once again, our number 233 88266. Uh, Dr. Mann, good morning to you. 
morning. Yes. Thank you very much indeed for for joining us and, and staying up late. Um, how's the situation? You're you're in London at the at the moment. How how are things there? We've heard about the, some relaxation or attempts to uh, relax the uh, measures, and, and uh, they've been criticised for a kind of vagueness. Uh, what's your impression at the moment? Yes, Hugh, I think that uh, it can't have escaped uh, your listeners' attention that uh, the UK and London, perhaps in particular, has had some challenges with this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I would say that, thankfully, we seem to have weathered the worst of the peak and uh, probably in the downslope of the plateau now, uh, such that um, uh, some relaxation of the restrictions that the public has been observing uh, are now uh, permissible. And we're operating now, as you've heard this evening, under a, uh, a, a five-tier alert system uh, with five levels uh, upon which social freedoms and a return to, uh, to economic activity will be, will be based. And at the moment, I think it's deemed that the transmission rate of the virus is, is uh, sufficiently uh, controlled, at least for some return to, uh, to social activity and work. Well, presumably, Dr. Mann, good morning. Um, morning, Mike. Yeah, we're gonna ha- are we going to have a yo-yo here? That if there, there is an uh, increase in infection rate um, and the, we get back over one, um, then some of these restrictions will have to be reimposed. No, I think that's, that, that's, a, fair, that's a fair point, and I think that's the reason for having a uh, flexible uh, response system that allows you to adapt your measures according to the actuality uh, the importance, of course, uh, of testing uh, so that you can actually monitor the uh, spread of the virus in the population is critical if you want to try to have a uh, titrated return to social and economic activity. Right. Absolutely. What is the testing situation in the UK? I would say that it has uh, also had its challenges, as you, as you know, but it's uh, significantly improved on where it was just a few weeks a few weeks ago, and I think with the incorporation of a, of a wide-scale now government system, uh, assistance of private enterprise, and even involving uh, foreign testing laboratories, I think there is now adequate testing uh, capacity. Why has it been so bad in the UK? What went wrong? Well, I, yes, I, I think it's, it, it cannot have escaped anyone's attention that there obviously have been problems and we, we obviously have had, regrettably, uh, a, a huge loss of, of life. Uh, I should say, if you compare to similar countries, to the experience in Italy and Spain, you've probably seen a similar uh, devastation. Uh, the reality is that although uh, preparations are in place in all modern countries, uh, pandemics arise in their own time frame, and regrettably, stockpiles that were once made Ten or so years ago, may have been found to now become out of date or inadequately uh, resupplied. Uh, your preparation is one thing, and then the adequacy of your response is another. I should say that, uh, in many respects, uh, it, it's a sign of relative success that the health service here, the National Health Service, has managed to expand its capacity and to repurpose uh, to an admirable degree, such that it was never actually overwhelmed by the number of uh, new cases, admissions, and uh, critical care requirement. But unfortunately, the human toll in terms of, um, of uh, illness and, and loss of life has, of course, been enormous. 
Okay, uh, uh, number two three three eight eight two six six. We've got a caller, a Mike, I think, on the line. Mike, good morning. Well, good morning, and it's been a long time since I talked to Darren. How are you, Darren? Yes, I'm fine, thanks, Mike. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you recognize my voice, but I had a question, and that was, did we get it wrong to begin with as far as the uh, uh, isolating well people? It's fair to say that uh, different countries, uh, I think largely determined by their history and experience in recent years of infectious disease pandemics, different countries have assumed different um, uh, attitudes and different postures to the preparations for, for this pandemic, even though it could be seen arriving over the horizon. Uh, some countries were more permissive of the view that perhaps to allow it to progress through the population and, and to uh, permit uh, significant numbers to derive immunity naturally was one way to manage it. But if you're going to do that, then you need to protect and shield your most vulnerable populations. Absolutely. Uh, others are, yeah, others are, that's what you might call a defensive posture. Uh, the UK was not alone in assuming that. Sweden and other countries have done so as well. Um, in other parts of the world, notably Hong Kong, uh, Korea, Japan, a more offensive posture was adopted uh, with testing, tracing, contacts, isolation and treatment and controlling the virus and uh, restricting its access to the population. Um, there are, in so doing, you prevent the overrunning of your healthcare system which regrettably is what was seen in Italy when the presence of the virus was not initially, I think, uh, adequately recognized. And then yeah, it but you have to home. realize in Italy, in Italy, I mean, they're, they're, they're medi you don't want to get sick in Italy. I mean, their medical system is run at just about 90% capacity at all times. And so just a little bit of problem. So Italy is really not a not a, a great example to use. Mike, but I've got news for you. Most modern healthcare systems are occupied to 90% capacity um, yeah. in, in summertime, and that becomes in excess of 100% capacity in winter, ordinary flu pandemics. Hong Kong's own system is usually 95% occupied. Yeah, that's true. And yet that's it's coped admirably with this. Yeah. Well, good talking to you. Okay, Mike, thank you. When you kiss Get in touch when you get back to Hong Kong. Okay, Mike. Thank, thank, thanks very much indeed, uh, Doctor Mann. I understand you know you're involved in the in the struggle in the, in in the UK, and as you say, there've been a large number of deaths. But you, I mean, you've also got a Hong Kong perspective on this, I'm sure, and you understand why people in Hong Kong just look aghast when they see and they saw large crowds gathering for race meetings and so on, and people wandering around and not wearing masks uh, and so on, and a kind of uh, indifference towards uh, towards the uh, towards the threat of a, of a pandemic when people in Hong Kong were, you know were hunkering down. Um, and it, I, yes, you know, I, I agree. People must have looked at They didn't take it seriously. What, yes, well, I think, I think there was a sense of denial. And I think some of the messaging uh, from, from uh, the administration was, was mixed. And I think that people uh, were given uh, some sense of reassurance that perhaps it wouldn't necessarily be as bad here as it had been in other parts of the world. And, of course, that, unfortunately, 
was destined not to be the case. I think Hong Kong people, particularly uh, based on their uh, previous experience with SARS, but also with swine flu and bird flu since then, I think Hong Kong people themselves rightly uh, take credit for the uh, societal response and the personal fortitude and compliance with uh, isolation and hygiene and uh, really the social control that limits the spread and impact of, of a virus of this, of, the, of this nature, of this infectivity. And I think perhaps next time round you'll find that Britain and other countries are better prepared. Right. Also with us on this item is Dr. Siddharth. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, what do you make of the latest situation in, in Hong Kong and around the world? Well, in, at least in Hong Kong, the situation has brightened considerably. We are now at three weeks without a locally transmitted case of COVID-19, so that is great news. Once we get to about 28 days without local cases, that means two incubation periods of the virus. That means that uh, we have probably been successful at largely halting community transmission. And uh, as, as has been said, all credit to the people in Hong Kong, as well as uh, the uh, way the border controls have been set up at the airport at the moment in uh, making that happen. Around the world, the situation is highly variable. So we've seen uh, some parts of the world uh, also achieving some modicum of control. Other parts of the world in which the virus continues to ravage society. And as lockdown situations start to get relaxed, uh, we are going to see a kind of boomerang or, as you said, a yo-yo situation. We are going to get a little peaks of... Uh, uh, COVID-19 being seen again. And uh, Hong Kong would be no exception. I mean, we can't hope for a permanent resolution of the state of affairs, of this state of affairs, when the uh, rest of the world is still seeing so many cases. So we might see a rebound in the local epidemic in Hong Kong as well. I see the Swedish authorities are still defending their approach um, and, and saying, in fact, that there's going to be a second wave maybe September, October, and that, that those places that went the control route um, are going to be harder hit than they in Sweden. Right. right. Well, it's, it's a question of uh, how of the posturing, as was uh, uh, nicely put in the previous part of the program. If you really feel that the best way for your uh, population to be protected is for everybody to get it, there's no arguing with that. That would probably sharply reduce the size of a rebound. But the first wave is going to be uh, unpredictably severe, right? And it's going to put an ex extreme amount of burden on healthcare systems. So it, it, the more the approach taken by uh, places and several countries in East Asia would be that uh, look, there are going to be effective antivirals coming out soon. There are going to be effective vaccines coming out soon with uh, high likelihood. Uh, so let's hold on until such therapies become available or such preventive measures become available, and then maybe there's a way of protecting or treating people against COVID-19 much better. So we just saw in the weekend about the uh, how effective interferon uh, therapy was for patients with COVID-19 in Hong Kong. So we expect breakthroughs like that to slowly emerge as
and we know more about how to manage it. So as far as getting COVID-19 is concerned, I mean, now is not the best time because right. we really don't have a good hand on how to manage it now. So we, we, we controlled the spread to buy time for, for vaccine and, and, exactly and right. better treatments. Yeah. What yeah. about the argument now that, um, in fact, because of all the, every, all the hand-washing that's going on and the other steps taken, there have, in fact, been fewer deaths uh, in the first quarter of this year than there would otherwise have been uh, right. if you take all the respiratory il- illnesses ad- and added together. That is a fact, not just in Hong Kong, but this has been shown in uh, Singapore as well as Taiwan. You've had studies coming out showing that uh, influenza rates have dramatically reduced because of all the hand washing and in some areas mask wearing that's going on. So uh, influenza is a major driver of death, not just because of influenza itself, but because of uh, all the um, underlying medical conditions that it triggers in the elderly. So with the reduction in the influenza peak, you, it would be reasonable to expect that uh, death rates have dropped as well, especially because uh, in Hong Kong, for example, we've had relatively few COVID-19 cases. We've just had a thousand odd cases. However, in parts of the world where, of course, you have a lot of COVID-19 uh, uh, in the community, the death rates, if anything, have gone up. Dr. Mann? Yes, Mike, I would, I would extend that and say that, uh, for example, uh, simply a reduction in road traffic accidents that you see as a consequence of restrictions and lockdowns, road usage, means that uh, overall death rates uh, may, may, may well be seen to have fallen in certain sectors of the population. Right. But there may, of course, be a rebound effect uh, to follow later in the year as it's recognized that when you apportion uh, a huge uh, elements of your health service to the management of a, uh, a viral contagion, uh, all manner of other medical and surgical problems that ordinarily still occur uh, are not being treated in the t- same time frame, and there will be consequences for that a little bit later. So your heart you patients, manage, your heart yes, patients, for example, are going to yes, that's right, and and people unfortunately with uh, cancer uh, and um, and uh, other problems. Uh, Ultimately, their care will be uh, delayed in some degree, but you can only manage on the basis of priorities in these circumstances. People, uh, Dr. Siddharth, can I can ask you a question? Um, you know, you look at uh, people have written, for example, about a very striking difference between uh, the outcome of the or what's been happening with the disease so far uh, in Western Europe and, and Eastern Europe. And it seems that Western Europe has been much more seriously affected than Eastern Europe. And then you look at the United States, that's been very seriously affected. And then, you know, the countries in East Asia, which have not been very seriously uh, affected. Um, it, could it, this be, you know, how much do we know? Do we have any idea of how much is down to perhaps different strains, different, I don't know, ethnic susceptibilities or something like that, um, uh, and, and not so much on, you know, uh, public health practices? Is there something in the disease which is making it more virulent in certain areas than others? At the moment, there is no evidence to suggest that uh, there is a significant difference in how different strains of COVID-19 behave. So around the world, as you have more and more COVID-19 transmission, the virus does change uh, because it's an RNA virus and it's capable of mutation. But uh, the genetic differences that we have seen up to date 
there is no evidence to suggest that one stream is worse than other. So it, it doesn't seem to be down to the virus itself. There's again no clear evidence that uh, there is a difference in terms of genetic uh, susceptibility to the virus. Uh, how severely a country is affected to some extent still depends on uh, how much testing is carried out, right? how, how transparent the reporting is, and, uh, uh, and, and really things like that. So it uh, probably boils down to more how we report these figures rather than uh, any underlying differences uh, between different ethnic groups or between different strains of the virus. Right. Now, as we... As various countries around the world, and, and including in Hong Kong, we ease up uh, internal rules in our own communities. That's, that's sort of one track of, of opening up. But virtually everyone has got these travel bans or requirements for fortnight quarantine on arrival, which is effectively killing most travel. Um, what is going to happen when we start to open up between countries? Right. Uh, that is probably the last step in terms of uh, relaxing restrictions. So as I said, the first rule will be relaxing internal restrictions, like opening up businesses or maybe slowly relaxing the uh, mask usage in the public uh, aspect of things. Then over time, you would have to consider selectively opening up the border to, say, uh, non-residents. In that kind of scenario... Um, you would expect that there will be importation of COVID-19 back into Hong Kong or any other uh, territory that chooses to relax its border restrictions. Well, that would, that can be done. However, it would have to be accompanied by um, very close monitoring of people who have actually uh, come into Hong Kong from overseas, like is being done in Hong Kong at the moment. But it would have to be expanded to anyone coming in from overseas. And uh, that would call for a massive investment of resources and manpower that uh, I, I think Hong Kong is going to find quite challenging. So the relaxation of the uh, of border control is uh, is actually an unknown at the moment. We don't know when is a good time and how it's implemented, and there are no guidelines to follow per se. But uh, it'll have to be uh, considered uh, slowly. So would, one, would one we have to have 100 percent testing on arrival? actually do have 100% testing on arrival, but at the moment we are restricting people coming into Hong Kong to uh, Hong Kong residents. Right. So if, if everyone, if, if we basically allow non-Hong Kong residents to come into Hong Kong as well, then we, if we want to maintain 100% testing, then it's going to be, have to be a massive surge in capacity. Um, so that, that, that is going to pose a significant challenge. Okay, some uh, more comments. Uh, Mr. Pink in an email says, the recent spike in new COVID cases in South Korea, specifically a growing cluster of cases linked to nightclubs in one area, is a stark reminder of how quickly things can unravel when restrictions are lifted. And as RTHK News reported this morning, Germany has also experienced an uptick in cases after it relaxed rules last week. Look at the bar scenes in Soho last Saturday where streets were packed with patrons. See the attached photograph of Peel Street. I fear that Hong Kong will suffer a second wave if government acts too quickly in removing social distancing rules. 
Uh, and uh, Martin says, uh, so much for herd immunity. UK and Sweden are now the worst performing countries in the world in terms of preventing COVID-19 deaths. Uh, he says the chart below shows per capita COVID-19 uh, death rate in the last seven days. UK is the worst in the world. Sweden, the second worst, and the US in third place. That comes uh, from Martin. Thanks so much in, indeed for that. Um, uh, Dr. Mann, are you feeling uh, optimistic or are you worried about a second wave or are you thinking that UK has kind of turned the corner or what, how are you feeling? Well, I'd say a couple of things. I think that, of course, caution uh, for detection of a second wave and, and cluster case development is, is always warranted. Um, the uh, comments from, uh, from one of your listeners about herd immunity or what some people believe should be unheard of immunity uh, in, in, a, in a pandemic with a, with a previously unencountered organism is something that we take on uh, on board. Uh, one important point I would like to make, uh, while there's still time in your program, is the impact that managing this disease has had on the frontline hospital workers, uh, medical workers, nurses, therapists, and care home workers. Uh, and you will have seen, actually, uh, regrettably significant numbers uh, of those workers themselves losing their lives or becoming infected uh, during the course of uh, facing off against this pandemic. And I would say the importance not only of protecting them adequately, but including them in the preparations and including them at the administration level of the discussion on how to prepare for, manage and face uh, head on uh, this form of, um, of pandemic is important. And you know, nowhere was this uh, more, uh, I think, visibly seen than in Hong Kong when you actually had a strike amongst healthcare workers in the hospital authority when they were the first to identify that Hong Kong actually could be isolated and the population there could be adequately treated if effective border control was introduced uh, and adequate protective equipment provided for those staff members. And there have been other parts of the world where health uh, workers have also unionized in their own uh, defense and protection. So I think that's important for the public to appreciate. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Mann. Uh, Darren Mann, the surgeon uh, based in Hong Kong, currently in, in the UK, uh, assisting with the COVID-19 response. And Dr. Sridhar Siddhar, thank you very much indeed once again, clinical assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology at the University of uh, Hong Kong. Some uh, emails, thank you very much, that I, I will share uh, tomorrow because uh, we're out of time for now. Mike, thank you very much indeed. Herd immunity is a destination, not a strategy. That was said on a previous show. Okay. Noted. Uh, the weather, sunny intervals, maximum temperature about 30 degrees. Showers and a few squally thunderstorms later. Uh, the outlook, there will be showers and thunderstorms tomorrow and then the weather will improve gradually in the following couple of days. 29 degrees at the moment. The relative humidity is at 78%. To protect patient safety and rights, the Private Healthcare Facilities Ordinance requires that private healthcare facilities where doctors or dentists practice must apply for relevant licenses. Applications for different licenses are being accepted in phase Applications for licenses for day procedure centers can be made from January 2nd, 2020. The application dates for licenses and letters of exemption for clinics will be announced later. For details, visit orphf.gov.hk. 9.31, the news now with Samantha Butler. 
France and Spain are among a number of European countries which have begun to lift many of their coronavirus restrictions. In Spain, the easing will apply only in some regions where people will be able to meet family and friends in gatherings of up to 10. Bars and shops can open at reduced capacity. Britain has become the latest country to announce a gradual relaxation of some of its coronavirus restrictions, but the changes only apply to England. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson said people would be actively encouraged to return to their workplaces and limits on outdoor exercise would be lifted as long as social distancing was maintained. And the U.S. Vice President Mike Pence has begun self-isolating away from the White House after an aide was diagnosed with the coronavirus. His press secretary, Katie Miller, tested positive for COVID-19 on Friday. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? Not too bad at all. Good morning. Even the Hello. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Welcome to Monday. Have you had a lovely weekend? Great to be back with you. More fantasy rugby after 10, of course. The boss of Hong Kong rugby, Robbie McRobbie. Now, after that, New York correspondent Tracy Kwan will be back with all of her Monday news. And a book review, which she promised you last week. Then, after 11, we are off to San Francisco to meet renowned orchestra conductor Nicholas McGeegan. Now, Nick directs America's foremost, what they call, early music ensemble. They specialise in Baroque music and stuff on the instruments, or copies of the instruments it was written for. It's called Philharmonia Baroque, but that's not really what we're here to talk about today. He's got another passion for which he's getting quite a name. As a musician, he travels a lot, which involves fun times and friends and, of course, food. And hopefully he will continue travelling very, very shortly. And in his blog, Roving and Recipes, we get to find out about all of the above. Join us via video link on Facebook Live and meet conductor Nick McGeegan after 11.